coming up next on Passion Struck. The question that I've always wondered and something that I was looking into when I was writing this book is, does looking younger make you live longer? And the answer actually is, it appears to be so. There was actually a study from Denmark where they looked at something like 1,100 people and they're all identical twins. So genetically, they were identical. And they found that the younger looking of the identical twin tended to live longer than the older looking one. But we don't know if that's causation or correlation. Is it that the person looked younger because they had a better lifestyle? Maybe they had healthier habits? Or is it actually the fact that looking younger seems to help you live longer? I don't know. And it probably is a combination of both. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become passion struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 2024 and episode 394 of Passion Struck, consistently ranked by Apple as the number one alternative health podcast. And thank you to all of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. I am so thrilled to share some exciting news with you. My new book, Passion Struck, is now available for pre-order, and it's been recognized as a must-read by the esteemed Next Big Idea Club. Celebrate this milestone and show my appreciation for your incredible support. I've arranged special bonus gifts worth over $300 for everyone who pre-orders. You can place your order now on Amazon or visit passionstruck.com. This is my way of giving back to our inspiring community. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and I can't wait for you to dive into the book. Additionally, I have a special invitation for you. I am so excited to introduce our new Passion Struck quiz. It's a unique opportunity for you to discover where you stand on the Passion Struck continuum. Are you an orchestrator who's masterful about balancing various aspects of your life with passion and purpose? Or are you a vanquisher? conquering challenges and turning obstacles into opportunities. Take the quiz on passionstruck.com and find out which one resonates more with your journey living a passion struck life. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or family member. And we still love it when you do that. We have episode starter packs now, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize in convenient playlists that give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And in case you missed my interviews from last week, they featured Stephanie Walder Taylor. Stephanie's journey is a powerful narrative, transformation, and a deep dive into the complexity cities of motherhood, the deceptive comfort of alcohol. Her memoir, Drunkish, is not just a farewell to our dependence on alcohol, but an invitation to understand sobriety beyond the stigmatized stereotypical labels. I also interviewed Dr. Richard Jacoby, one of the world's leading peripheral nerve surgeons, the medical director of the Extremity Health Center in Scottsdale, and a staunch advocate for reshaping the way we approach our health. We explored the intricate world of chronic health, the impactful role of everyday habits, the medical choices that profoundly influence our lives. And if you liked either of those episodes, or today's, we would so appreciate you giving it a five-star rating review. It goes such a long way in strengthening the Passion Struck community where we can help 
people to create an intentional life. And I know we and our guests love to hear your feedback. And I wanted to thank you so much for your support and helping us achieve over 30,000 reviews globally on Apple alone. Throughout the month of January, as we're near the launch of my book, I'm going to feature guests who signify what it truly means to live a passion-struck life. I am so excited to kick the new year off with today's interview, where we will delve into the transformative world of anti-aging and rejuvenation with the esteemed Dr. Anthony Yoon. I love Dr. Yoon's videos on social media, and he has built a massive 15 million followers across TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Our discussion challenges the common belief that signs of aging are an unavoidable aspect of life. Instead, Dr. Yoon, a leading authority in plastic surgery, enlightens us on how aging is often accelerated by environmental and lifestyle factors, and how, more importantly, it can be reversed. His groundbreaking approach detailed in his latest book, Younger for Life, Go Great and Look Your Best with the New Science of Autojuvenation. Dr. Yoon introduces us to his autojuvenation process. This method isn't about superficial fixes. It's a comprehensive lifestyle transformation that harnesses the body's natural ability to rejuvenate itself by combining strategic eating habits, intermittent fasting, targeted nutritional supplements, streamlined skincare routine, and non-invasive treatments. Dr. Yoon guides us on how to turn back the biological clock naturally. Listeners will gain invaluable insights into reversing the aging process, developing a skincare routine for lasting youthfulness, and adopting practices for better sleep, exercise, and overall wellness. Dr. Yoon also shares his expertise on the latest beauty trends from red light therapy to at-home thermal planning and gives a candid look into cosmetic procedures like Botox, fillers, and more. Lastly, we touch on breast implant illness, a topic many listeners have asked me to have a guest address. This episode is not just about looking younger, it's about embracing a lifestyle that promotes overall health and longevity. Dr. Yoon's unique blend of professional expertise and accessible advice makes this a must listen for anyone looking to feel and look their best in any age. Join us as we explore the art of aging gracefully with Dr. Anthony Yoon, a true visionary in the field of plastic surgery and wellness. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am absolutely thrilled and honored today to bring you Dr. Anthony Yoon, on Passion Struck. Welcome, Tony. Thank you so much for having me, John. This will be a lot of fun. Uh, I am such a fan of all that you're doing on social media, and we're going to get into that. But I think for the audience, it might be good for them to get an understanding of who you are and how you grew up. <laughs> so my father, as I told you, grew up between eight and 11 mile in Detroit. And I know you grew up in a small town in Michigan, whereas I understand it, you were maybe the only Asian child that you knew. What was that like and how did it shape who you are today? Yeah, I actually wrote about this in my first book in Stitches, but it's it was interesting because I grew up in a tiny town called Greenville in the middle of Michigan. It's about 45 minutes northeast of Grand Rapids. And we were, just like you mentioned, we were the only Asian family in that small town for most of the time, let's say I was in high school. And honestly, it was a challenge because at home, we lived one type of a life because my parents had immigrated from Korea. They were the first generation. Yet out with my friends and everything, I lived a different kind of a life. And one of the things that is huge with some of the stuff that I'm sharing nowadays on diet is I find it really fascinating because just growing up, we ate a lot of traditional Korean food. Yet when I would go out with my friends, it would be McDonald's and Burger King and KFC and Pizza Hut and all of that. 
So it was definitely an interesting upbringing. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I am definitely a small town kid, but I've had a lot of experiences as a plastic surgeon in, in Los Angeles and New York, and, and now I'm in Detroit. I wanted to ask, what led you into wanting to become a plastic surgeon? So really the day that I was born, I think like a lot of Asian, especially middle sons, <laughs> I, my dad told me I was going to be a doctor. And my parents had pretty much had their own path from my life, their own plan. And they said, okay, you're going to become a doctor, but you're not just be going to become a doctor. You're going to become a high powered surgeon. So my dad would say, you're going to be either a neurosurgeon, a cardiac surgeon, or a transplant surgeon. And I, the dutiful son that I am, I went through what they told me to do. And I had this kind of general idea that I wanted to help people, whatever I end up doing, I just want to help people. And so it made sense. Okay. My parents tell me I'm going to be a doctor and I do want to do something where I'm helping people. So I'll just follow that path. And as I got into medical school, I started working with uh, doctors and I thought, okay, I'll go into surgery. And then one night it was three in the morning. I was taking call as a medical student overnight. And I saw a 60 year old man stumble out of a call room in the middle of the night to attend to a trauma. And I realized as I watched this trauma unfold that this is not me. Like, I do not want to be that person that makes these life or death decisions for people. And maybe that person dies, and then I'll go and eat food in the cafeteria right afterwards and push it out of your mind. That just is not my thing. Uh, I didn't think that I would be able to honestly handle that. This idea that my dad had that I was going to be this high-powered surgeon that's in a stressful field... I decided that was not what I wanted to do. And it took a long time for my parents to come to grips with that. I told my dad I wanted to be a family doctor and he was not happy with that. <laughs> but after a few months, I was actually in my old uh, twin bed at my house visiting for a weekend. In the middle of the night, the door cracks open. My dad comes in. He tells me, Tony, move over. So I move over and I'm lying there in my twin bed. He lies down next to me, both of us grown men in the twin bed. And he says, Tony, if you want to go family practice, that's okay. You can, you have my blessing. And he said, you're never going to pay off any of your loans. You're going to be poor for the rest of your life. Nobody's going to care. But if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. <laughs> and then actually I discovered the field of plastic surgery and I realized, oh my gosh, this is a field I want to do because I've always been an artist all my life. And this kind of combines artistry with surgery. I do love work with my hands. And I ended up choosing that field. And, and now my parents are really happy because they like the idea of, oh, wow, he's actually a plastic surgeon. I absolutely do think it's one of the most creative skills you could use in medicine if you've got that creative side to you. Yeah. And I've painted in the past and stuff like that. And, and I love doing surgery itself, but it was that whole, the stress. I'm not into making a split second decision that will either save somebody's life or lose it because those times in my life when I have had patients of mine, let's say as a general surgery resident and stuff like that, who haven't lived because they've had cancer and stuff like that, it just, it's so hard. And I have so much admiration for people who can do deal with that every day. I just can't. No, I can completely understand. My fiance is now a primary care provider, uh, but she used to be an ICU nurse and oh, wow. she did that for about 10 years and would just tell me about the stress of day in, day out, having to deal with death. And I tell you, ICU nurses are some of the most skilled people in healthcare, period. 
when I was a resident and an intern going through the ICU, and I worked in a lot of ICUs in my three years of general surgery training. Uh, and on a lot of times I would honestly ask the ICU nurse, here, I'm a physician. I'm the one technically is supposed to be in charge. And I'd ask them, what do you think we should do here? And almost always I would follow their advice and that would be the right thing to do. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to really switch topics on you. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, a little bit warmer than where you are in Detroit, <laughs> but there's this restaurant that's right down the street from me called Harvey's. It's been open since 1984. And during COVID, the owner told all his staff that he would take care of them. Most of the employees have worked with him for 15, 20 years. And he did what he said he was going to do. And you had a similar journey at the beginning of COVID. As I understand it, you made a commitment to your staff to continue to pay them despite facing really financial uncertainties. Can you share with us how this challenging time led you to embrace social media? And it's now yeah. given rise to 15 million followers for you. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was March of 2020. I had just paid off all my taxes and I didn't have a lot of money in the bank at the time. And COVID hit. And literally within the span of three days, I found out that I had to close my practice down. Now, I was one of the first people in my area to close their practice down. At the time, it was very scary. We didn't know what was going on. And they said, look, if you are uh, essential healthcare practitioners, you can stay open. And I remember coming into the office on a Monday morning, and I just saw the fear in my employees' eyes because we didn't know what was going on back then. You just hear, you heard these stories of people dying in New York and stuff, and I could see the fear in their faces. And at that point, I made the decision before we were actually told that you should close down. I, I thought, you know what, this is crazy. I said, well, let's maybe we'll close for four or five days. And just so that people can get their bearings, we can see what the heck is going on here. And then maybe in a week or so, five days, we'll open back up. Well, fairly quickly after that, we were given the order that all non-essential practices need to close down. Interestingly, a lot of plastic surgeons they didn't close down. They go, well, we think Botox is essential. We think plastic surgery is essential. We're doing reconstructive surgery maybe. And so a lot of practices stayed open and there was this big kind of fighting in between some plastic surgeons of should you close down, should you not? So I was one of the first in my area to close down. And, and just like you said, I told my employees, I said, look, my employees have been with me. Some of them have been with me since I started 19 years. And I said, I told all of them, I'm going to pay you for as long as this goes, I will take care of you. And I said, I don't know that I can pay you 100% of your salary every two weeks, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you get paid and that this is not going to financially devastate you. And then I closed my practice down and I looked at my schedule. We canceled everybody. We started doing some online consultations, which would literally bring $200 a day, maybe, which when you've got 11 employees, that's not going to go very far. And I started thinking, how can I make money to help pay them? I have savings. I can always use that if I need to. And the biggest checks that I was getting that I was looking at that were non-patients were from Google, were from social media. I've done social media for a long time, and I did it mainly as a marketing tactic, get people to know who I am, to educate them and stuff. And I thought, at this point, really what I want to do is help people. And I volunteered for my local hospital if they needed me. And thank God they didn't, because man, if you've got COVID and you have a plastic surgeon taking care of you, that's got to be a really bad scenario. You don't want me taking care of you if you've got COVID. And so at that point, I made the decision. I said, look, I'm not, I don't have to act like a doctor that, that everybody expects that I'm supposed to be. I'm just going to entertain people. And if I can take them for 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes out of the scary 
crazy time that it was, the lonely time that it was, and give them just a little respite from that, maybe make them chuckle a little bit, then that in and of itself may be enough for me to help people. And so that's when my social media exploded, I think, because people were looking for company. And I had so many people afterwards email me and comment, thank you so much for keeping me company during the pandemic. And I realized, I said, I can help 30, 50 people in my office every day and maybe change their lives. Or through social media, I can help hundreds of thousands, even millions of people a day, maybe not quite the same as when I'm seeing them in the office, but I could still help them to get through this horrible, scary, crazy time. And it really, honestly, it was a privilege to be able to do that. And so we were closed two and a half months. And once again, my biggest checks were from all the different social media companies, and it really helped me stay afloat and pay all my employees until we were open back again. I'm going to have to do some more intense studying on what you're doing because this is absolutely working much better than what I'm doing. I I launched a great audience. Well, thank you very much. I launched this show for many of the same reasons is I could have coached people individually, but it really limits your time and how many people you can really help. And so part of launching the podcast and the YouTube channel and other things was to try to bring hope, inspiration, and meaning to so many people out there who I feel desperately needed with what's going on in the world. Well, and you're doing a great job. You've got one of the top five health podcasts in the country. That is amazing. So I commend you and I really am so blessed to be on your show. Well, the honor is mine, Tony. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you're one of the few doctors who will address some of the topics that are top of mind to many of my listeners who, when they heard you were on the show, wanted me to ask you a few questions. So I'm going to address those before we get in the book. And the first one is breast implant illness, which is a topic of considerable debate right now in plastic surgery. And I wanted to tell you, Tony, this is one that hits close to home for me because a few Mm -hmm. years ago, I dated a woman who underwent a double mastectomy because she had the BRCA gene. But following her breast implant surgery, she began experiencing a variety of distressing symptoms. And I remember she was beside herself because she couldn't understand if it was a hormone issue. She was in her mid thirties, so that seemed unlikely. But given this personal connection and the growing reports from many women who believe that their breast implants are causing symptoms like I hear headaches, brain fog, muscle aches, even hair loss, what does the latest scientific research say about breast implant illness? And is it a recognized medical condition? So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of science and it's not technically a recognized medical condition yet. So let me just give you a little bit of the background, I think, for people to really get the whole picture about breast implants and BI. So implants have been around for many decades. In the late 80s and early 90s, it was a huge kind of a hubbub, a big stir that was created by a lot of women who believe that their breast implants were making them sick. At the time, Dow Chemical was making a lot of breast implants. They were uh, sued in a class action lawsuit. They went bankrupt. And in 1992, the FDA imposed a moratorium on silicone breast implants. Basically, they said, you can no longer, plastic surgeons can no longer implant these unless they're in an FDA-approved study. So each of the main breast implant companies started up a study to study whether silicone implants were potentially causing illnesses, where they're having complications uh, that a lot of these women were claiming. So the study went on for, gosh, like 14 years. And then in late 2006, the FDA abruptly lifted the moratorium on silicone breast implants, allowing them to be used again. 
Now, throughout this process, we were using saline implants throughout that whole time. And once that moratorium was lifted, a lot of plastic surgeons believe that this was essentially proof that, okay, everything we've told you all this time, breast implants are safe. They don't cause these illnesses. This was their proof. And it really became dogma in plastic surgery that breast implants do not make people sick. If people have these types of symptoms that you're mentioning, it is from something else. It could be psychological. It could be autoimmune. Who knows? But it's not the implants. So fast forward about another decade, a couple of websites start coming up and Facebook groups start getting filled with tens of thousands of women telling their stories about how their implants were making them sick and when those implants were removed, how they seemed to get better. Now, for me, I'm a board certified plastic surgeon. I went through all the traditional training and I go to our national conferences and I believe the same, the dogma, that was what I was always told. They said, oh, this is what the studies say. But honestly, John, I didn't really read those studies carefully. This is just what you go to the meetings and they all tell you, they lecture this to you. So I started seeing some of my own patients who said, yeah, I've got these weird symptoms. I've been looking at this breast implant illness. What do you think, Dr. Yoon? And at the time I had undergone a metamorphosis in my practice, really looking at holistic medicine, alternative medicine. And I started thinking, well, why don't I look a little more into this? And I went to these websites that these women were creating about BII, breast implant illness, and these studies that they're citing, I never heard of them because they weren't in our plastic surgery literature, in our plastic surgery journals. They were in rheumatology journals, internal medicine journals, and none of the plastic surgeons ever told me about them. And we don't look at those journals. So I started looking into this and I thought, wow, there is really something here. So I went public with this many years ago, and I tell you, the backlash was pretty swift, John. At the time, I was really rising up as a uh, rising plastic surgeon in our national societies, and literally within the span of a few months, all of my committee assignments were gone, and I was basically persona non grata. Uh, I had plastic surgeons calling me and saying, hey, you're a good friend of mine. I just want to give you a, a tip. Stop talking about this BII stuff. People are not happy with you. And honestly, after... Thinking about that and really weighing it, I don't really care if they're upset with me because really what I'm trying to do is spread what is real information and support patients and especially women who really have gotten the short end of the stick with this whole thing. And so the fact really is that there are not a lot of studies that have looked at BII. Our societies now actually have turned the corner and they are now studying it. And this is a subject now at all of our annual meetings. And more and more plastic surgeons are being open to the fact that this is most likely a real thing. And so now they're asking me to talk about it. <laughs> but for many years, that was not the case. So really where the fact remains is that anywhere from 55 to 85% of women who have breast implants and develop these symptoms that you've mentioned, brain fog, fatigue, rashes, hair loss, muscle aches, 55 to 85% of them seem to get better when those implants are removed. Not everybody, but the vast majority do get a significant improvement in their symptoms, but we just don't have the studies to know who's at risk, what percentage of women are at risk. These are things that are being done right now. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, we at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, 
Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. And are there any other factors that anyone has found, like genetic predisposition or anything else that makes this more apparent to some and not to others? Yeah, there are a lot of beliefs in holistic medicine. Uh, One of them is that it could be bacteria related, and I think that's possible. It could be what we call a biofilm related. A biofilm is a tiny amount of bacteria that can coat the surface of an implant in certain cases. And it's possible that the body is reacting to that bacteria causing this type of uh, autoimmune symptoms. It's also possible, it's believed that heavy metals may have had something to do with it, but recent studies uh, have really, that's most likely not the case. Genetic predisposition is definitely possible. We just don't know. That's the thing. Studies are coming out, but really very slowly coming out with it. The big things that we need to find out is who's at higher risk of it. What's the percentage chance that you might get it? And what we're finding out now, we know how to treat it. It's just, there's no true study for it. It would be great if we had some type of a blood test, a silicone reactivity test or something that would tell you that you are at risk of BI. But right now it's called a diagnosis of exclusion, where essentially you get tested for everything else. And if all comes back negative and you have implants and you've got all these symptoms, then let's take your implants out and see if you get better. And unfortunately, that's the only way to really test for it. Thank you for all that insight. After the interview, if there are any resources you could give me to put in the show notes, I'll definitely do that for the audience. Yeah, it's a hot topic. And it's something that I think we really just, in the end, honestly, John, is we need to listen to women and believe their stories. And for way too long, those stories were not being believed. I think that's a great way to end this aspect of the interview. Another hot topic that many of the listeners have asked me about when they heard you were coming on is how do you balance surgical interventions and non-invasive treatments? And I have to tell you, Tony, I remember meeting Carrot Top about 14 years ago. (laughs) And sometimes the plastic surgery outcomes can be unpredictable, but I ran into him maybe five years ago and my God, he looked like a completely different person and I hate to pick on him, but it's an obvious example of someone who has done a number of procedures. Can you share some of your insights on why some plastic surgeries, particularly among high profile individuals, don't always produce desired results? And if you're a person considering this, how do you go about that choice of either doing a surgical procedure or a non-invasive one? Yeah, I think that Keratop, I've actually heard recently that he has the best show in Vegas. So if somehow he listens to this, I am a fan of his. I've not actually heard his show, but I heard it's like the best one in Vegas. It is awesome. <laughs> I, yeah, I love yeah, going I to he, it. 
he's under the radar and people are like, oh my gosh, this is seriously the best show in Vegas. But people like Heratop, we believe have had obviously a lot of plastic surgery. We don't, he's never admitted to it, obviously. But I think that there are two real reasons why you see, especially celebrities undergo too much work. The first reason is honestly, society is not kind to them, especially women. As they get to a certain age, it's hard for them to get certain roles and they get passed up for the younger, quote unquote, more attractive actor. And it's tough. And so I do think that there is an outside pressure for a lot of especially women and some men now in Hollywood too, to look a certain part. And naturally the face changes, we age. So I think that's part of it. I think that there's this pressure that that normal people like you and I just don't understand. And we can't even empathize with because we don't know what it feels like to be a woman in Hollywood who's getting older and the roles are drying up and they want to work. The second thing is what you call body dysmorphia or BDD. It's estimated that about 1% of the population has body dysmorphia. And essentially that is a psychiatric condition where what in the mirror is different than what everybody else sees. And so you see almost like a carnival funhouse mirror version of yourself whenever you look in the mirror. Now, whereas like somebody may have a tiny bump on their nose and everybody looks at that and go, yeah, it's a tiny bump. It's nothing to that person. That bump is the size of Mount Rushmore. And they do not understand why people can't see how absolutely hideous that bump on their nose is. And so they undergo plastic surgery after plastic surgery and a misguided attempt to correct a perceived deformity that was never even there in the first place. This is the kind of idea that you may have seen with, let's say, Michael Jackson, who's had multiple operations on his nose. A lot of body dysmorphia does actually focus on the nose for some reason. But I think that you combine those two things. We think that about 1% of the general population has some type of body dysmorphia of plastic surgery patients. That's upwards of 10%. And you combine that potential risk of body dysmorphia with the pressures of Hollywood. And now you see people who've got these pillow faces that are overly plump, the lips that are huge. And a lot of them don't realize how plastic they look. They're just trying to look like they feel that this 20-year-old actor looks like themselves. And it's tough. And, and I sympathize with them because now too, obviously people poke fun at them and stuff like that. It's just, it's a difficult situation. And so what would be your recommendation if someone is thinking of either going under the knife or looking at an alternate way to approach this? How do you help your patients decide? Yeah. So I think the first thing you need to consider is plastic surgery should always be used as a last resort. So if anybody asks me, Dr. Yoon, if I have this operation, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? My answer is you can die. We always start off with you can die because you can. There's about a one in 50,000 chance that you can die in a cosmetic operation. And obviously if you're in poor health, that number is higher. If you're in better health with a smaller operation, that number is much lower but you've got to consider the risks versus the benefits. Now, when you're looking at surgery, and let's just talk about facial surgery, for example, there are so many things, and this is part of the book, I know we're going to talk about it in a little bit, uh, but there's so many things that you can do short of going under the knife that can help turn back the clock and give you beautiful and healthy and youthful looking skin. But there are things that no cream, no non-invasive treatment, not even injection is going to make better. So if you've got droopy skin, let's say of your neck, if you've got jowls that you really don't like, if you've got excess skin hanging from your upper eyelids, excess skin is the one thing that these non-invasive treatments will not treat, period. If you've got uh, loose skin from your tummy after having four children and you've got rashes underneath that, you know, the only way to really get rid of it is surgery. But taking the issue of excess skin out 
if you take that out of the equation and it's not that's causing you to not be happy with your appearance, then we have so much else that you can do without going under the knife. Okay. Well, we're going to explore a bunch of that and I'm going to put up a copy of the book. It's behind you as well, but your new book is coming out on January 2nd. And I found it such a fascinating read. So I was very happy that I got an advanced reader copy of it. Thank you. But Tony, the book starts out with a provocative question. How old are you really? Can you explain what you mean by this and how it ties into your concept of auto juvenation? Yeah. So really, there's a lot of ways to look at age. There's your chronological age. And so for me, my chronological age is 51. There is your technically biological age. So there are many different ways, and I don't know how accurate these are, but there are many different, let's say, blood and urine tests and things like that, where you can try to get what your inside age is. Essentially, how old is your body functioning? So somebody, let's say, has all their years had bad, been on a bad diet, they've had not taken care of their body, then their actual biological age much be maybe much higher than their chronological age. On the flip side, if you've been really taking care of yourself, then your biological age may be much less than your chronological age. And then there's the age that you present yourself as. And interestingly enough, there was actually was a study. The question that I've always wondered and something that I was looking into when I was writing this book is, does looking younger make you live longer? And the answer actually is, it appears to be so. There was actually a study from Denmark where they looked at something like 1,100 people, and they're all twins, identical twins. So genetically, they were identical. And they found that the younger looking of the identical twin tended to live longer than the older looking one. But we don't know if that's causation or correlation. Is it that the person looked younger because they had a better lifestyle? Maybe they were, were did, had healthier habits? Or is it actually the fact that looking younger seems to help you live longer? I don't know. And it probably is a combination of both. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to have to look more into that study, especially looking at different twins and see how that plays out. In chapter one, you go into discussing the nature of aging and how gracefully are we doing it. In your perspective, what constitutes aging gracefully and how can we assess our own aging process? I think everybody... When I look at aging and aging gracefully, some people think, oh, you're aging gracefully, you're not having work done. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. The way that I look at aging, honestly, and I think the way that I try to encourage people to look at aging, and and I struggle with this myself, being a 51-year-old man, is that it is a blessing to get older, period. Because if you didn't get older, that means that you're in the ground. And we don't want that. But at the same time, it's no fun to look in the mirror and to see a face that you may not be happy with. Unfortunately, as we get older, we get wrinkles, we get sunspots, we get thinning hair and all of that. So it's no fun to necessarily look in the mirror and see a face that you don't recognize or one that looks older than how you feel inside. And so for me, the way I look at aging gracefully is having gratitude that you're getting older, having gratitude that you are on this earth for another day, another month, another year, but at the same time, understanding that sometimes it's no fun to get the backache. Sometimes it's no fun to feel stiff. Sometimes it's no fun to look in the mirror and see things that you don't want to see, but you can actually fight that every step of the way. And you can do that in a way that can actually even be fun. It can be exciting. And you can do that even as a team with, let's say your partner or with your friends. And so that's what I try to encourage people is to look at aging gracefully as basically aging in a way that contains a lot of gratitude, but at the same time, 
doesn't mean that you don't have to do something to fight that process. And when it comes to aging, there are a number of physiological and what many people don't even think about is environmental factors that contribute to it. How much control do we really have over these processes? Well, we believe that about 20% of our aging is genetic and things that are in your genes that you cannot change. But the other 80% is in your control. And that's a lot of control that we have. And this is a concept called epigenetics, where your genes will contribute approximately 20%, but the rest of it is how you live your life. And really, and this kind of comes to that concept of autojuvenation, uh, and it's this belief that if you give your body the tools that it needs, you can make major changes in your health, in your skin, and your internal biological age as well. The problem, I think, is that in our traditional society, in our American society, is that we typically don't give people those tools. People are not educated in how to use those tools and how to turn back the clock naturally. And that's been my goal with writing this book is to use the inner. So the idea behind autojuvenation is using your body's own regenerative abilities to rejuvenate itself. Because once again, if your body has those regenerative abilities, it just needs to have the right environment and the right tools to do that. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Over the past year, I've done a number of interviews. They happen to be earlier in the year around epigenetics, biological age, etc. And these were with people like Kara Fitzgerald, Amy Shaw, Mark Hyman, Will yeah. Cole, and others. In chapter three, you start introducing your Younger for Life program. Can you discuss some of the core principles of it and how it differs from other anti-aging approaches that I may have covered on the show? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I'm a traditionally trained plastic surgeon, like I mentioned earlier. I have a lot of friends of mine who are in the alternative space. Uh, Will Cole, fantastic doc. Uh, I just did his podcast the other day. And it's funny because if you were to ask a alternative medicine physician, how do I get beautiful, youthful, healthy skin? They'll tell you, you've got to heal your gut. If you ask a dermatologist, how do I get beautiful, healthy, younger looking skin? They'll tell you to wear a sunscreen and use a retinol. If you ask a plastic surgeon, how do I get that? they'll tell you to use Botox and have a facelift. And so the way that I look at overall anti-aging per se is a ideally a combined or integrative approach is to take a lot of the teachings and concepts, let's say from a Dr. Mark Hyman, from Dr. Fitzgerald, and then to combine that with what we have learned with traditional dermatology and plastic surgery as a true kind of inside outside combination. And so the way I look at it first is I look at, okay, what can you focus on for aging of the skin? And I would argue that there are five main causes of skin aging, at least five that we can really target. The first one is nutrient depletion. The second one is chronic inflammation. The third one is oxidation and or free radicals. The fourth one is collagen degradation. And the fifth cause of aging of our skin is a buildup of cellular waste. And that's what we focus on in general for turning back the clock of the skin. Interestingly enough, food is present. The diet that you eat, the food that you eat is present in almost all of those. Okay. So why don't we start with the food that we eat? In chapter eight, you list age accelerating foods. Can you give some examples of these foods and why they're detrimental to our aging process? Yeah. So as far as bad foods, the way I would look at that is that there are two of these causes of aging of the skin that definitely are contributed by bad food. So the first one is chronic inflammation. Now, the food that you eat can create inflammation in your skin. And the 
The one that I would focus on mainly, the first one would be sugar. Sugar truly is a great ager of our skin and it ages our skin using two different pathways. The first pathway is glycation. And essentially what this is that our skin itself is composed of collagen. 70 to 80% of our skin is collagen. And it's the part of our skin that causes our skin to feel tight, to feel smooth and firm. And as we get older, starting in our mid twenties, we start to lose about 1% of the thickness of our collagen every year. In women after menopause, that increases up to about 2% a year. So how sugar can impact the collagen of our skin is that when you ingest sugar, the sugar can actually bond to this collagen fibers. And the way I describe it, the collagen is like the logs of a log cabin. And when you're younger, those logs are nice and tight and your skin is tight as well. But as you get older, those logs become frayed, they start to fall apart. In comes a high sugar diet. And what happens is that those sugar molecules will then bond to the collagen, causing that collagen to fall apart even more. It becomes kinked. And you get this kind of sugar collagen hybrid connector that are called advanced glycation end products. It's appropriately titled AGEs, okay? And these basically cause then the collagen of our skin to be permanently kinked and essentially prematurely aged. So that's the first way that sugar impacts the collagen of our skin. The second way is called is chronic inflammation through chronic insulin spikes. So you get chronic sugar spikes that can create chronic insulin spikes. And when you get chronic insulin spikes, that can lead to insulin resistance and that can cause chronic inflammation as well. So if you were to do one thing diet-wise to help your skin to look younger, if you were to, to get rid of one thing diet-wise, I guess I'd say to make your skin look younger, it would be to reduce the amount of sugar that you ingest. And there was one survey I found that in the standard American diet, 20% of the calories in the standard American diet come from sugar-sweetened drinks like soda pop, like energy drinks, fruit juices. That is a lot of basically empty calories just from sugar. I think that's an important one to highlight. I think the other one that people don't think about is we often think of our desserts and sweets that we would like, or maybe the sodas as you brought up. I think other things people don't really consider are white rice, the yeah. breads we're eating and just the other night, we didn't want to use a sour cream on our chili. So we were going to use a yogurt that I'd bought at Trader Joe's, just their standard Greek yogurt. And I was shocked to see that it had 16 grams of sugar and 14 were added sugars. So you really have to look at the foods that you're eating if you want to eat cleanly is a core message, I would say, as well. Yes, I totally agree. And like I said, sugar is the number one thing. The number two thing though, that I would look at to avoid food wise for your skin are ultra processed foods. And these are foods that don't look anything like the original food that they were before. I mentioned to you that one of the main agents of the skin is oxidation and free radicals. These are basically compounds that can damage the DNA of your cells and certain foods are filled with free radicals. And the ones with the most free radicals are these ultra processed foods like processed dessert foods, uh, cookies, cupcakes, those types of things that you buy typically in packages that last forever. Those two, they're filled with free radicals. That is definitely damaging to your skin. Yeah, it's even speaking of Trader Joe's, interesting how when you buy bread from the supermarket, it tends to last for weeks on weeks. You buy it from Trader Joe's, you got mold on it in two or three days, which just shows you processed versus non-processed foods. Exactly. One of the topics I love to talk about because it's something that I do personally is intermittent fasting. In chapter nine, you cover 
why stopping to eat promotes cellular rejuvenation. How does intermittent fasting play a role in autojuvenation? Yeah, I know you're a big fan of intermittent fasting, and that makes me happy because I do that as well. So intermittent fasting, I mentioned the five main causes of aging of the skin. One of the main causes of aging of the skin is buildup of cellular waste. So our cells basically, as they function, they create cellular waste products. And these are proteins and organelles and even used mitochondria. And these will build up in our cells. And the only way to really effectively get rid of them is for your cells to undergo a process called autophagy. Autophagy means self-eating. And essentially it is a intracellular recycling process. When our cells run out of energy to fuel them, then they kick into this process of autophagy where they start then using this intracellular waste products, these proteins and organelles and old mitochondria, and start using them actually for energy. It's really this kind of great recycling process. And when it uses this for energy, this uh, autophagy occurs, and that cellular waste is basically used up, now the cells start to function more efficiently, more youthfully. So the process of autophagy is one that is a very anti-aging process that a lot of anti-aging scientists are, are big on. But the problem with autophagy is that in the standard American lifestyle, we're used to eating all the time. And even at one point, doctors are saying, hey, instead of eating a couple of big meals in the day, just snack all day. That's a better way to go. And there's nothing that could be further from the truth. And so for autophagy to occur, for this intracellular recycling and renewal to happen, you have to be off of eating for a period of time, ideally at least 12 hours. You need to give your body time to fast for 12 hours where you're not providing it with all this energy, and then you allow those cells to undergo that process. Ideally, what I recommend in the book is to do a 16-hour fast if you can. Now, for some people, even doing a 12-hour fast can be difficult for them. And so I encourage you to start where you can and then try to build your way up. And what we find is that by doing that, it's going to help your cells to function more efficiently, more youthfully. And then the one thing that we added too that I haven't heard anybody do before, but I thought was really fascinating, and we saw some nice results with it, is that people would then fast. So they, basically, they would stop eating at 8 p.m., and then they would uh, not eat until noon the next day, in which case then they would break their fast at the lunchtime. But what we discovered basically, there are certain foods that can promote autophagy, that process, even while you're eating. And those foods are healthy fats like omega-3 fatty acids and monounsaturated fatty acids and polyphenol-rich foods. By eating these types of foods, even when you break your fast, that whole next day, you could be also helping to continue stimulating that autophagy process, even though you're eating. And what we found is that this intracellular renewal, people find that if they do that regularly, they start seeing their skin looking nicer. It really is an anti-aging way, a natural anti-aging mechanism that you can kick on. You just have to give your body the tools to do that. I love it. I'm a true believer of it. I've been doing it for years. I feel completely different when I do it than when I don't do it. And to me, once you can get into that pattern, it's one of the easiest things that, that you can possibly do. And it saves you money because you're not eating a meal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that I encourage people to, it is a muscle. It's like a muscle that you have to work. You don't expect you're going to do a 16 hour fast regularly, just like that. People get hungry, but your body will learn and you will learn that you don't have to eat as much food as you may be eating right now. And as regularly now, initially it may take a little time to get used to it, but just try it. Start with the 12 hours gradually work your way up to 16 and you will notice that, man, I'll skip breakfast and I still feel fine. Like I'm not that hungry. It, it definitely, it takes a little bit of time, but work at it. And I encourage people definitely try it.
Another area I wanted to cover that can be controversial is supplements. And I am a huge believer in supplements. My fiance is more of a holistic doctor, so she is as well. But I have to tell you, every single year I go to my primary care physician and he asks me what supplements I'm taking, he just shakes his head and he tells me they don't do anything. But I will give you some of the ones that I'm taking. And I take magnesium in pretty high qualities because of what I've learned from uh, Dominic D'Agostino about it being one of the most underutilized supplements that you can take. I followed Rhonda Patrick's guidance on what I'm doing for omegas and take really high levels because especially for me, I have suffered from uh, previous traumatic brain injuries. So I really need it to supplement my hormones for cognitive functioning. I take resveratrol, I take beet supplements, mushroom supplements, Akira Fitzgerald recommended, and I do a lot around uh, zinc, the vitamin B variety, and then I also do a daily detox to help detox my lungs, my colon, etc., as well as some of the other core organs. But in this chapter, you discuss some of the supplements you recommend. I was hoping maybe you could talk about some of the ones I've talked about, maybe some of the ones I've missed. Yeah, I think the ones that you're taking, I'm familiar with most of them. And I think those are great. Magnesium is something that actually my wife and I were just talking about yesterday because she said, I haven't been sleeping that well lately. So she's getting herself started on that on its own. For me, I think the way I look at it is I'm, I am also very pro supplement, but I'm not a, a supplement biohacker. I have friends of mine who'll take 200 pills in a day and I just, it's not me. But also I hear what you're saying with the family doctor. And I find the family doctor story is something I hear all the time because one of my favorite supplements is collagen. And I, have, I take I will, that too. <laughs> okay. I take that too. Uh, so I'll put information out there on social media. Then I'll have people reply, oh, my family doctor told me it, it's a waste of time and money. Don't do it. And I find it fascinating. There's a doctor that is on social media and he's a weight loss surgeon, older guy. He's probably in his sixties, got a big bushy beard. And he speaks with a lot of authority on these matters of nutrition. And he made a video a couple of years ago about collagen supplements, basically stating that collagen supplements do not work. If you really want collagen, just go buy some Jell-O gelatin. It will do the same thing. And I thought at the time, oh, geez, I disagree, but I'm not going to get an argument with the guy. And interestingly, just several weeks ago, I saw another video pop up as I'm on TikTok or Instagram. and, And it was him watching that original video and then swiping it away and saying, guys, I was wrong. Collagen supplements do work. Sometimes you have a belief and when you actually look in the studies, you find that what you believed was wrong and I was wrong. And I thought, oh my gosh, he actually came forward and said that he was wrong on this. I think family doctors, a lot of times they're anti-supplement because they don't really know. And if you actually look at collagen specifically and me being a plastic surgeon and a skin expert, collagen is a huge one because once again, our collagen is 78% of our skin. And the big question has always been, do collagen supplements help the collagen of your skin? And doctors will tell you, no, because it's a large protein, which is true, that will get broken down in your stomach. And how do you even know it's going to get to your skin? So why even bother? Well, the fact is that there are a plethora of studies that have proven that collagen helps with your skin. So for example, John, there was a meta-analysis published in 2021 of over 1,100 people They took hydrolyzed collagen peptides for 90 days and found a statistically significant improvement in wrinkles, hydration, and elasticity of their skin. 1,100 people. 
there have been prospective randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials where they put people on hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplements and actually biopsy their skin afterwards and find an increase in the amount of collagen in their skin. Yet still, doctors will poo-poo it. And for me, the reason why I think doctors do that is number one, they're either just anti-any supplement, they don't even look at the studies, they just are anti-supplement, and or number two, they just haven't looked at the studies. Like me with breast implant illness many years ago saying, oh yeah, the breast implants don't make you sick. I never looked at the studies. I was just told that that was the case. How many of these family docs have actually gone on Medline and did a Medline research of collagen and its effects on the skin? My guess is probably not that many. Well, it's amazing how little nutrition is actually taught in most medical programs to begin with, much less how much anyone is paying attention to it outside of that medical curriculum that they went through. Yeah, uh, it's true. I got almost no education in nutrition at, in medical school. This is stuff I had to learn on my own as a practitioner. Tony, I'm going to dive quickly into part three of your book, which is to renew with skincare from the outside in. And in here, you go through a number of different things, such as skincare routines. You explore treatments for ageless skin, how you protect the skin, et cetera, how you cleanse it. Out of all of these, does one of them rise to the surface as being more important than the others, or is it really doing all of them in conjunction with each other? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there's a lot of confusion in skincare nowadays because you'll go to Sephora or you go to a department store and there's so many products that promise this. This one's better than Botox. This one will erase your wrinkles overnight. And there's just so much misinformation and just lack of knowledge, I think, in skincare. For me, the way I look at it is, yes, there are a couple of things that do rise above. And so what I encourage you to do, really, some people focus too much on things like cleansers or toners or even serums. And really what it comes down to is, I, we created this very simple skincare routine that I'd love to share. It literally takes two minutes a day. And this is a starting point for anybody who wants a healthy skincare routine. Uh, the first thing is in the morning, I encourage you to cleanse your skin, use a cleanser appropriate for your skin type. And so if you've got dry skin, then you want to use a milky or hydrating cleanser. If you've got oily skin, then a more foaming cleanser will be better for your skin. And then very important would be to apply an antioxidant serum after that. Antioxidants fight free radicals or oxidation. I mentioned earlier that certain foods are filled with free radicals, but free radicals are actually also in pollution, in cigarette smoke, and in other things that we are exposed through our environment. And so our body's defense against free radicals, which uh, as I mentioned earlier, they damage the DNA of our cells, our body's defense are antioxidants. And you can take antioxidants by mouth. That's one reason why we recommend eating the plethora of fruits and vegetables, a rainbow of them, but you can also apply it to the surface of your skin. And the most common antioxidant used for the skin is vitamin C. Bonus, if you want a more synergistic effect, you can add vitamin E to the vitamin C as well. That's gonna give you actually a synergistic effect and even better antioxidant coverage. And then after that, I do recommend applying a sunscreen, especially if you're gonna be out during the day, at least an SPF of 30. But really in the morning, that's all you technically need to do. Cleanse your skin, use an antioxidant serum like vitamin C, and then a good sunscreen. At night, super important, you have to cleanse your skin. If you only cleanse your skin once a day, make sure it's at night. That way you can clean off the day's worth of dirt and grime and dust and pollution. If you wear makeup, that's also, you wanna get that off as well. You wanna really get your skin nice and clean. And then you wanna apply an anti-aging cream. Now. The one that we usually recommend you start with is a retinol 
Retinol is a derivative of vitamin A. Prescription strength is Retin-A. You may have heard of Retin-A. That's prescription strength. Over-the-counter strength is retinol. And most skincare companies have a retinol in their skincare line. And technically, that's all you have to do at night. Cleanse your skin, apply an anti-aging cream like a retinol. And then if you want to apply a moisturizer on top of that, feel free, but it's not mandatory. If you've got oily skin and you don't want to apply a moisturizer, by all means, don't you don't need to. That's not going to be anti-aging technically. And then once or twice a week, I encourage you to exfoliate your skin. You can use a gentle scrub or you can use like an alpha hydroxy acid peel. When you exfoliate your skin, you get rid of that upper layer of dead skin cells. It will actually send a cellular signal to your deeper skin cells to turn over more quickly. And this can rev up that kind of cellular rejuvenation process of your skin, can even help get rid of, let's say, dark spots that you don't like more quickly as well. So very simple skincare routine, a couple of steps in the morning, a couple of steps at night, once or twice a week, exfoliate your skin. And if that's all you do, John, you're going to be way ahead of everybody else. Anything else on top of that is just gravy, really. Well, that's great advice. And throughout the book, you have even more advice from ranging from everything from recipes that you have in here to other guidance that you give. So it really is a great guide if you're a listener today to pick this thing up to go into some of the more in-depth things that Tony covers throughout his book. I did want to quickly touch on part six of your book, though, which is regenerating with next level holistic anti-aging treatments. And you cover a whole range of topics from DIY anti-aging treatments to professional in-office procedures, including how do you manage age spot, sagging skin, eye rejuvenation. Can you maybe give one of the most effective strategies for these common aging concerns? Well, I think that the first thing I would encourage people if they're listening to this, it's one thing if you have the time, the money, and the physical access to a med spa or a dermatologist or plastic surgeon, but not everybody does. And so what I wanted to do was share with uh, readers how they can actually take matters in their own hands in a safe manner. One great way for you, if you're listening today and you're like, look, I'm on, let's say a fixed budget. I want to look better. I can't spend thousands of dollars on these treatments is to consider red light therapy. That's a good entry-level treatment. Red light therapy can come in many forms. You can have a handheld device that you treat a quadrant of your face at a time. It can come as a tabletop, a rectangular thing that you look into for a period of time. Uh, It can even come as like a Hannibal Lecter looking creepy mask that lights up behind. Uh, But all these function to do the same thing. The idea is that this red light energy is actually infused into your cells. Your cells take up this energy by the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells. And it causes them to rev up production of ATP, which is the energy creation by our cells. And so the idea is that this red light device can help to supercharge your cells to function more efficiently, have more power, and that truly is anti-aging. Now, some people will use red light therapy for, let's say, pain and, and recovery after workouts and things like that. But there are actual studies that have looked at the quality of the skin after being treated with red light therapy. And they found an improvement in wrinkles, hydration, in the tautness and the fullness of the skin as well. And if you're going to do one thing and you wanted to have good bang for your buck, the first step would be red light therapy. The second step, if you're looking for something very quick and easy, is dermaplaning. Dermaplaning, basically, you can use very specialized blades to essentially exploit the top layer skin and get rid of the vellus hairs. Now, we do this in my office. It costs about $100 by an esthetician to do it but you could literally buy little dermaplaning devices on Amazon or at your local health store 
and you can do it for just a few dollars on your own and your skin will feel nice and smooth afterwards. Okay. And in the book, you have a lot more different examples of things that you can do in the house. Another great resource for the listener to pick up. Well, this is a question I love to end the interviews on, Tony. If you could give the listener the most important takeaway you want them to hear from your book and our discussion today, what would it be? I think the biggest takeaway I would take from something like this is that looking younger and extending your life there's more to it than just getting rid of wrinkles. And what I try to encourage people is to look beyond just the physical. And yes, the book, and, and I try to give you tips on how you can improve that physical part of you, but so much of growing older, the importance is more than just skin deep. And so in the book, I tell a story about a little dog that uh, I adopted that we rescued. My wife and I are really big into senior dog rescue. And um, we have adopted five senior dogs at different stages of their lives and what I learned from these dogs um, are lessons that I take into my practice and into what I try to show my followers. And so we adopt these little dogs who have their own medical conditions. They've basically been discarded and they have so much love and appreciation that they give back. And we had this little guy named Sammy and we adopted him. He was 12 years old at the time. He was basically in a shelter on a concrete floor with a little bed that smelled of pee. And he was given up by his previous owner because he had been attacked by a group of pit bulls. And he was in the hospital for so long that he no longer was house trained. And basically he was banished to the basement by the owner's boyfriend. And eventually she was uh, convinced to give him up to a rescue. So we adopted him. And honestly, for about three months, this little guy was really skittish. He tried to run away a few times. And then after about three months, you could tell all of a sudden, it's like he let out this sigh. And he knew that he was home and he knew that he was around people who loved him. Now, throughout the time that we had him, which was we had him for about three years, he had issues with a slip disc in his back. He was unable to walk for a while and stuff. But the entire time, he literally had a smile on his face every day. And he was just so happy to be alive and to be loved and to be appreciated. And while you are learning how to turn back the clock, while you're learning how to feel happy with your appearance, always try to keep that in mind is that it is such a blessing to be alive in today's day and age and try to look at gratitude, just the fact that the, of the miracle that it is to be alive at this time and to be able to enjoy basically living, especially amongst people that you love. So that's, I think what I would like to leave people with is that, you know what, it's a blessing to get older. And if you want to fight it every step away, by all means do that, but be happy that you're able to do that at the same time. I love that ending. Last night I went to Toastmasters and our word of the day was grateful. So what a wonderful well, I'm thing. I'm grateful to you, John, for having me on your show and uh, for letting me tell my stories and uh, give a little bit of advice here and there. So thank you. Oh, Tony, you're so welcome. And maybe you can just end by letting the audience understand where they can find you because you are everywhere, but they're not <laughs> familiar with you. I would always encourage people to take a peek at the book. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is there is a website called bookshop.org. Uh, bookshop.org is a website where you can buy books and order them. And the good thing with that is it supports local booksellers. And so if you've got a local bookstore of yours, uh, independently owned, if you go to that bookshop.org, you can actually choose your local bookstore. And if you order a book there, they will actually send 
the profit of that sale to your local bookstore. And so we always encourage people, if you're going to consider buying Younger for Life, try to go to bookshop.org first. Obviously, that's on all the other big places, Amazon and Costco and all that, but try to support your local bookstores. And a lot of people don't realize that's available. Otherwise, a website that we have is called autojuvenation.com. And we have a ton of free gifts for people who order the book as well. I, I love that you brought that up because on my recommended reading list from all the people I interview, I have your typical source, Amazon, and then I put uh, bookshop.org on there as well to help support them. Well, Definitely. Tony, thank you again so much for being here. It was such an honor to have you. Thank you, John. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Dr. Tony Yoon, and I wanted to thank Tony and Hanover Square Press for the honor and privilege of having them appear on today's show. Links to all things Tony will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles and our clips channel, Passion Struck Clips. Please check it out and subscribe. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. You can find me on all the social platforms at John R. Miles. Sign up for my personal development newsletter at passionstruck.com or my work-related newsletter on LinkedIn. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast I did with Dr. Amelia Elizabeth Lati, an extraordinary thinker and author of the new book, Gentle Power, a revolution in how we think, feel, and succeed using the Finnish art of Sisu. I think there is something to be said about us as humans going on these quests sometimes with ourselves. And they don't have to be quests that we physically tap our feet on the ground. It can be an ultra endeavor of many kind. And many of them, we actually run inwards. And we explore that unexplored terrain of the, our soul and our heart and human psyche. So for me, this journey, well, how would I say? It started from a dream like literally bringing a dream that happened inside my mind as I was napping and bringing it to life. Remember that we rise by lifting others. So share the show with those that you love and care about. And if you found today's episode on auto rejuvenation with Tony Yoon useful, then definitely share it with those that you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, go out there and become passion struck. Mm-hmm.